I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the November edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on how dangerous a toy can be, the magnetic effect. During the last decade, there's been a significant increase in the number of magnetic toys available for children. In this issue, Shallaby reports a case of multiple, that's greater than 60, magnet ingestion from one toy, with the 12-year-old girl presenting with a generalised peritonitis and requiring an emergency laparotomy where she was found to have multiple bowel perforations and fistula. The pathophysiology is that two or more magnets can attract each other across the bowel wall, resulting in pressure necrosis, perforation and fistula formation. The authors review practical issues, recognition, diagnosis, management and call for increased public awareness of the serious and potentially life-threatening effect of ingesting these rather attractive-looking toys. The wider topic is discussed in an editorial by Mike Thompson, who talks about the hazards of button battery ingestion and calls for a public health action and national helpline to deal with these issues more effectively in the acute setting. The second article I'd like to highlight relates to not enough salt in maintenance fluids. This is a leading article and I commend you to read it. Colin Powell discusses this important issue, providing the background and evidence. In essence, use isotonic fluids in most clinical situations to avoid promoting hyponatremia. This is an essential read for anyone who prescribes fluids and reflects the changing evidence base and changing practice over the last 25 years. The third article which I'd like to highlight relates to prevalence, repairs and complications of hypospadias. Hypospadias is one of the common congenital abnormalities in boys characterised by an abnormal ventral opening of the urethral meatus between the distal glands of the penis and the perineum. In this issue, Schur and colleagues review the recent epidemiology, management and complications. That's 3,186 boys seen between 2001 and 2010 reflecting 35.1 per 10,000 live births. The proportions of anterior, middle, proximal and unspecified were 40%, 25%, 6% and 27% respectively. Surgical procedures were performed in 1,945, that's 61% of the total, with 1,718 primary repairs. 13% of these children had complications, including fistula formation, diverticular, meatal stenosis, and infection. Proximal cases were at the highest risk. More than 50% of complications occurred more than 12 months after surgery. The age of primary repair did not impact an outcome, although the international consensus is that surgery should occur between 6 and 18 months. The authors review their data in the light of other publications of the epidemiology and highlight the importance, because of the high prevalence of late complications, of long-term follow-up. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to what the general paediatrician needs to know about early life programming. This is an important update and it's editor's choice this month, therefore free to access. Early life programming is the process by which early life events can impact on health throughout the whole life course. The epidemiology is well established with low birth weight increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, the metabolic syndrome and osteoporosis in later life. The authors discuss the evidence 
and the many factors that can impact on this, including pre-pregnancy, antenatal and postnatal factors. It's of interest, while the epidemiological evidence for this has been available for decades, only in the recent years have the mechanisms, in particular epigenetic modifications for this process, begun to be clarified. And the authors discuss this, including how effects may be transmitted across generations. An understanding of early life programming and its consequences is of clear importance for paediatricians. Paediatricians are ideally placed to identify those most at risk of later disease and to facilitate the development and implementation of interventions to potentially modify that risk. The fifth article I'd like to highlight this month relates to head injuries from falls in children less than six years of age. Falls are a common mechanism in children admitted to hospital with injury. In this issue, Burroughs and colleagues review the outcome of almost 1,800 children admitted, median age 18 months, 55% boys. Most, that's 87%, had a normal Glasgow Coma Scale. 342 had a CT head scan, of which 110 were abnormal. 58 had an isolated skull fracture, 47 had intracranial injuries, of which 23 had an associated skull fracture. Falls from standing were the most common mechanism. The risk factors for skull fracture or intracranial injury were fall from the person's arms, mean age one year, odds ratio 6.94, fall from a building, for example a window or an attic, mean age three years, odds ratio 6.84 and fall from an infant or child product mean age 20 months odds ratio 2.75. There's more data in the paper particularly figures 1 and 2 and these are useful data which will help inform guidance for imaging, child protection discussions and health promotion initiatives. This article has been chosen for the Education and Practice Twitter Journal Club this month. The final article which I'd like to cover this month is in Fetal and Neonatal. It's already been covered by a podcast interview by one of our associate editors with the authors, which I would commend to you. But it's of interest to all of the wider readership and therefore I'd like to discuss briefly. Expert guidance suggests it's reasonable to cease resuscitation of an asphyxiated infant who does not achieve a heartbeat at 10 minutes. In fetal neonatal this month, Shah and colleagues report the Western Australian experience of infants with an APGAR score of 0 at 10 minutes admitted to their neonatal intensive care units. Data was by retrospective chart review between 2007 and 2013. 13 infants, all greater than 35 weeks. 8 died before discharge. Of the 5 survivors, one had a normal Griffith score of 103 at 1 year of age. One had a normal Bailey cognitive composite score of 110 at two years, but needed hearing aids. And two had normal Bailey cognitive composite scores of 100 at two years. Only one of the five had severe spastic quadriplegia. In effect, therefore, four out of these 13 babies admitted had a good outcome, at least in the short term. The authors argue that the outcome is not universally bad and highlight recent advances in neonatal care and the advent of therapeutic hypothermia 
as potential contributing factors. There are other similar data sets cited in the discussion. Should the expert guidance be revised, these issues are discussed in an accompanying leading article from Dominic Wilson and Ben Stenson. Don't stop now. How long should resuscitation continue at birth in the absence of a detectable heart rate? The article has a helpful summary box suggesting in most circumstances resuscitation at birth should continue until 20 minutes in the absence of a clinically detectable heart rate and that in the face of uncertainty about whether resuscitation should be discontinued, clinicians should err on the side of providing longer resuscitation with later consideration of withdrawal of treatment if the clinical course indicates that the prognosis is poor. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Thank you for listening.